Today we're going to be talking about the mystery of God. And again, we'll be in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. How many people here can honestly say one of their favorite forms of media or writing or movies is mysteries? Anybody like mysteries? Agatha Christie, whodunit, that kind of thing. Doesn't necessarily have to be a murder mystery, but just, you know, any, any kind of mystery where you're trying to figure out, you know, who, who did something. But there's a second, I like those, and there's a second kind of mystery, though, and, and one that I like a little bit more, probably, and that's a, the kind of mystery in life that deals with things that are so big or vast or unscrutable that they kind of boggle your mind. They're kind of, you kind of look at something and, and just admire an, an intricacy of something and you can't figure out how it works or why it works or, or anything like that. And you look at that and you're just amazed by it. I see that all the time. I get home from work usually around 4.30 in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, somewhere around there. And when I get out of my car, I look up at the sky. And one of the great things about living around here is you can actually see the sky. When you live in a city, the white or the, the white of the the street lights and everything else kind of washes out the sky, that and the smog. And you really can only see like the brightest stars. But when you get out of your car here in the middle of the night and you look up, you can see just about everything. You can see the galaxies, arms. You can see just all kinds of constellations that you can't see in a city. And I just sometimes get out after a really hard shift in the ER and I look up and I just remember, man, God made all that. God is still in control. And just, like, you stand there and just be amazed at God and how he created everything. Maybe it's something here on earth. Anybody here like nature and overlooks and scenery and different things like that? It was one of the things that we fell in love with when we first moved up here was the scenery. I still like driving toward Independence, going up over the hill and seeing the bluffs way there in the distance up there in Buffalo County. I think it's something that God has put in each one of us. The Bible says that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. And I believe that we get this kind of a hunger for those things that we can't explain, those things we call mysteries. And we get that's it's part of God's nature within us. I would say even that my love of science is built around this love of mystery. I like to figure things out. In fact, when I was growing up, I would drive my mom crazy because all the money that she'd save up and spend on Christmas and all these intricate toys and everything, by usually the first part of January, I was in my room with the door closed and a screwdriver taking it apart to try to figure out how it worked. She gets so mad at me because then I couldn't put it back together. But it's also one of the reasons that I love theology. Theology is simply the study of God. The study of who he is, what he does, and how he chooses to interact with his people. And theology is one of those sciences that is both beautiful in its diversity, but solid in its truth. The Bible is amazing in that it can speak to someone who might be a homeless drug addict, or someone who might be a physician or a Harvard Law graduate, somebody who has a great amount of education, it can still speak to everyone within that spectrum of humanity. And today we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Colossians. And we're going to look at chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 5, and exploring the mystery of God and what it means for our lives today. So in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul says, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea, for all those who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of the complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. And Father, as we continue our, our journey through the book of Colossians, I ask, Father, that you continue to open up within us the mysteries of God particularly the mystery of salvation, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and what it means for our lives today. Father, be with us as we dig into your word this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, a few moments ago, I said that theology can be beautiful in its diversity. Now, when I said that, maybe if you're... Um, a bit more of a Bible kind of person, that your ears may have perked up and said, well, wait a minute, there's only one truth. So when I said that, I did not mean to say that you can believe whatever you want about the Bible. The Bible has some hard and fast truths that we do have to understand. <clears throat> Saying that, we have to understand that there are parts of the Bible that are a little open to interpretations. After, I've heard a saying once that said, if God was small enough for our brains, we couldn't, he couldn't be big enough to be God. In other words, the language that we use, the English language, about 60,000 words in it, is not going to be able to describe that which is undescribable. Right? You can use every single word in every single language and still not be able to begin to describe God. At best, the Bible gives us glimpses into the character and nature of God, but never assumes to be a complete picture, just the part he wants us to know about him on earth, the part really that we can handle and understand here in our humanity. In fact, when you realize that, that in itself is embracing that mystery that is faith. Faith is a mystery. It can't be really truly described other than a belief in that which is unseen, that that is true. Much of the interpretation of the Bible has already been done for us. It's been handed down to us through the early church fathers, through many of the commentators we use today, and even the modern findings that shine the light on the authenticity and accuracy of Scripture. So I'm going to begin there today. We're going to learn to embrace mystery and search for the deep things of God um, we want to discover his nature for ourselves, but at the same time, we have to defend what has been handed down to us for the last 2,000 years. So as we understand that there are certain things about God that we may not know, we have to defend that which we do know. And we're going to talk about that in, his, in the struggle for true doctrine, for good doctrine. 
Now, doctrine is a bit of a double-edged sword for us here in the Assemblies of God. You say, well, that sounds funny. It seems like we have a very set doctrine. Well, let me, let me explain to you. Let's take a time machine for a moment back to 1910. We all get out of our time machine onto a busy street. We're looking around. We decide, I'm not sure where I am, when I am, or anything. I'm going to pick up a newspaper and see what the date is. So we buy a newspaper. We see where we're at, and we see what the headlines are talking about. And when in the first few pages of the newspaper, you read about a very strange religious movement forming in the United States, particularly focused around the Los Angeles area at this time. And the writer of the article, he doesn't mince words. He calls it a dangerous cult. He calls it a, they can't even describe what they, or who they are, what they believe, or why they believe what they believe. They're just going with it. And you flip over to the editorial page, and these are true articles that I found. You'll find opinion pieces written by popular Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist pastors, even some Roman Catholic priests condemning this new movement. Any guesses of who I'm talking about? Are you thinking that's Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses? Nope, I'm talking about us. That was the kind of persecution the Assemblies of God had in the early part of the 19th century. The Assemblies of God was officially formed in 1917, but it had been in the public eye since Agnes Osmond's first spoken tongues in 1901. In fact, in all the schooling I had to take to get ordained, one phrase from an early AG theologian from the early 1900s always stood out for me. They, he said that the Assemblies of God is an experience waiting for a theology. But that's how God works. Have you ever seen it, notice that in the Bible? God moves and does something new, and then we have to catch up and look at the scriptures and try to make sure that it's the right thing to do. After all, if you think about it, in Acts chapter 2, nobody had had the Holy Spirit as a group poured out on them. Occasionally, once or twice throughout the, the Old Testament, you read about people receiving the Holy Spirit, David most notably. But you never saw whole groups of people being baptized in the Holy Spirit like they were in Acts chapter 2. You see, God did something, and then later the apostles caught up and, and, and put it into words exactly what he did. And that's what happened within our denomination. God raised up men since then who have learned to study, who loved to study Scripture and were spirit-filled. Most notably, Stanley Horton searched the Scriptures and the early church writings and found that what we were experiencing back then and what we even experience today was common in the first century church. It wasn't written about a lot because it just was, it happened all the time. He said, actually, it didn't begin to die down until after about 325 A.D. Anybody re remember what happened in 325 A.D.? Probably won't unless you're a Bible nerd like me. That's when Constantine rose in power and made Christianity the um, official religion of the Roman Empire. Guess what? Churches are like, oh, we're not being persecuted anymore. We're not being dragged out and thrown into Colosseums anymore. We're good now. We don't need the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, now we have worldly power. Now, all of a sudden, we, he, he put the, the church at level of the government. 
So now all of a sudden their church got power and the Holy Spirit movement that carried them through to that time died out very quickly. The result was compromise. The church didn't hold on to sound doctrine concerning the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now before we, we turn up our noses at those dumb people who live back in the 300s, we have to recognize that we're experiencing the same thing today. In the late 80s, early 90s, churches began to worry about being relevant. So people would be comfortable in the church, the whole purpose-driven movement. Instead of preaching holiness, sanctification being filled with the Holy Spirit, we substituted light shows, fog machines, and songs focused more up on ginning up an emotion than teaching and reinforcing doctrine. Not only that, but many so-called Christian denominations have gone even further with this. They're watering down the scriptures regarding purity, holiness, teachings about sex and marriage and living a changed life before the world. As it was yesterday, so it is today. As Paul said to the Roman church, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is why sound doctrine is so important to us. And this is why Paul tells young pastor Timothy in both of his letters to him, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit which lives in us. And what was he talking about guarding? We've talked about it, true doctrine, but it begins with the mystery of God. As Paul has told the Colossian church, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Have you ever tried to explain something to a person and they just don't get it? So you bring somebody else over. Maybe, maybe, you can, maybe somebody else can help out here. Can you explain this to them? They try, and they can't. They, they're still not getting it. You bring a couple more people. Can, can you try to explain this to this person? And they still don't get it. They remain in the dark about whatever it is you're trying to see. Now this was, spiritually speaking, largely is today the Jewish person. With a few exceptions, there are people that are Messianic Jews, and they're great Christians, but most Jewish people today cannot grasp who Jesus really was. They can't. They can't understand what he did for us. It's a mystery to them. They have a spiritual blinder on that they just can't see. But it's not just the Jewish people anymore. If you stop your average person out on the street, or go up to Quick Trip after service and say, hey, what does Easter mean? What does Christmas really mean? What do the Ten Commandments say? Just the basics of Christianity, and most people aren't going to be able to answer you anymore. But how did this happen? How did this once Christian nation become so biblically ignorant? Well, the reason is summarized in 2 Corinthians 4, 
3 through 5. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They just can't see it. A little over 20 years ago, I just had a kind of a series of bad calls at work and a, a job opened up near me to be a middle, a middle manager for a medical call company. And our church at that time was planning on having an honor-bound conference where we were expecting over 800 people to show up. And I volunteered to run it, provided I get the time off work. So I went to my boss. Um, my boss at that time was uh, a gay man, and very dismissive about having anything to do with Christianity, even though he grew up in the Bible Belt. I mean, he, he and I, we had some discussions about faith, but he wouldn't budge. He said, it's just a fairy tale, just something that, you, that people like you use to keep people like me in, in bondage and blah, 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 that kind of thing. Didn't like it at all. So I went in and I handed him my vacation slip, and he asked me what I was going to do with my time off, you know, just out of curiosity. He said, you know, thinking I probably have a huge vacation planned. I said, well, I'm leading a team at my church, get ready for a Christian men's conference. We'll have over 800 people attending and some nationally known Christian leaders speaking at it. And he looked at me and he's like, wait a minute, you're using up all your vacation time, all your time off, not to go on vacation, not to take a trip, not to do something, you know, to relax, but to go and work for free and get nothing out of it at all. I said, well, that's not the way I look at it. I'm, I'm working for the church. And he, he just stopped me. He's like, signed, he sarcastically said, it's approved, just go forth and be saved. You see, the reasons I chose to serve the kingdom at that time were a complete mystery to him. And there are some people out there that through their own choices, as we saw up here in 2 Corinthians, who love their sin more than the truth. And if they stay in that condition, the good news of the gospel will forever be beyond their grasp. That is until the Holy Spirit can soften their hearts. I've probably been through just about every evangelism program there is out there. You can make a legal case for the gospel that would impress a Harvard Law graduate, but they're not going to budge. That's not going to make a person budge. You can pull on a person's heartstrings, show them how much Jesus loves them, and nothing will happen. You can make every logical or Socratic argument that you can, and they still will not be able to see it. They can't grasp it. It's a mystery to them. It's like if somebody gave me a thank you letter written in Mandarin Chinese and read it to me in Mandarin Chinese. I'm not going to understand a word you're saying. I don't know any, anything of that language. That's, that's what speaking the gospel is like to many in this generation right now. But this is why the church needs to get back to understanding the doctrine that the Holy Spirit is the most important person in the work of salvation. 
It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is released and activated through our prayers. You can have those best arguments. You can have those logical arguments and traps. You can pull on heart strings. You can give them gifts, do acts of service, all these different kinds of things to try to show them Jesus. But until the Holy Spirit grabs that person, softens their heart, there is no chance of your words ever penetrating. There is no chance of salvation in their life unless the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them. And that is a mystery I think the church is missing in this day. My friends, we need to get back to believing in the power of Holy Spirit-led prayer. People's hearts today are so hardened by the things of this life, the sin of this world, the oppressiveness that the enemy has brought down. Their hearts are so hard that we need to understand it's not going to be through a great argument. It's going to be a supernatural thing that happens that when we start exercising the very spirit of God living within us, that's what's going to make the difference. You have the, the think, just stop for a minute and think. You have the very spirit of almighty God living within you. He wants to use your prayers to save your loved ones. Now I can and do pray for your loved ones. When there's prayer requests brought up, those get written down and I pray over them. I can do that. But you know what? My prayers aren't going to mean as much as yours. I don't have as much of a burden to see your loved ones saved as you do. They're your loved one. He wants to use your prayers to save them. Nothing is as powerful as you opening up your heart to God through the Holy Spirit and exercising faith in His power. The power of Almighty God to save the heart of a sinner. Zechariah tells us, It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. It's all God. But here's where the doctrine comes in. Here's where the discipline comes in. Because you know what? It could take a while. Just as they've had years and years and years of the world impressing upon them, of pushing them into a certain way of thinking and loving a certain sinful lifestyle, it could take a while to pray and let the Spirit break through all that. And I know sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes somebody prays one day and something happens the next. But other times... It can take hours or days, weeks, even years. So I want you to think of your prayers like a balloon under a leaking water spout. Sometimes that water spout runs fast, sometimes it just drips. But no matter how fast that water is running, sooner or later, that balloon is going to get filled up and suddenly burst, and all of a sudden, all that weeping you did, all that crying over lost loved ones, all those prayers you offer to God will suddenly explode into heaven, and God's sovereign hand will 
I repeat, will move. You just need to have faith. Jesus is faithful. Jesus says he will remember every tear, every groan, every prayer, every pleading you offer him to save your loved ones. Jesus is faithful, and he will move on our behalf. The final thing I want to take from this verse in Colossians is the need for an orderly and firm faith. Paul told the Colossians, Though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. You know, nothing blesses the heart of a shepherd than seeing God growing in people's hearts. Sometimes I know, sitting in the pew myself for many, many years, it seems like pastors preach the same thing over and over again. Now that I've been a pastor for a while, I understand that you don't lay a foundation for a, a large building with one layer of concrete. It takes various layers of various materials over time so that foundation can build the weight of what is being built upon it. When I was doing camp nurse at Spencer Lake, one of the lull times I was sitting out at the picnic table and a retired pastor came over from the, the worship center. We were sitting down, we were talking, and he was telling me about a, ch a church he pastored early in his ministry. It was a planted church. He was the second pastor of the church. Stayed there for a little over five years. Saw great growth and great um, and, and a great amount of ministry blossom up. And he decided at that point it was time to move on. And he went and pastored some more churches. And he pastored for almost 34 more years and ended up retiring. Well, he and his wife were doing some traveling and happened to travel through the area of that first church he had pastored. They kind of snuck in the back um, after the, just right after the service start. That's what us pastors do to, when we go to churches that we used to be at. Sneak in the back so we don't want to cause a, a big thing. And they were surprised to see that both the associate pastor and the senior pastor got saved in the children's ministry that they had started in that church. Looking at the directory that was on the back of the bulletin, it seemed like their children now were in leadership positions. And their daughter and the daughter of the senior pastor was leading the children's ministry that they started. Think about that for a moment. How that pastor must have rejoiced, knowing that his labor was not in vain. Read Paul's words again. Although I am absent with you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. You know, I never know where, where life's going to lead me, and I'm not throwing out hints that I'm leaving, I'm not. But, but if God were to call me away, I hope I could come back at some point before God takes me home so I could see how orderly and firm your faith in Jesus is. And hope that it remained that way after me.